Hey, gang. <laughs> you guys are so funny with your avatars. Hey, brothers. Is that Barry Lyndon? Yeah. Oh, my God. You guys are great. And then Ryan. me on the couch today. <laughs> yeah. That's a great shot. I don't think I remember that shot. <laughs> I've never seen that still before. It's Barry after his world is coming apart. Oh, my God. Look at the colors. Wow. Even in the small frame, it just looks so beautiful. Yeah, it's not even the right aspect ratio, and it still looks great. Mm-hmm. God, that Kubrick. That's such a way yeah. to color. I usually uh, try to watch, rewatch some of the movies from the year that we're going to be talking about. I, I didn't get a chance to do that as much as I usually do this week, so I'm going to be, I'll be listening to you two a lot. Oh, no, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what I was gonna say. I was gonna say I didn't watch the movie, so it's you guys. You guys. But get we know to talk. these movies so well, right? That's the way I always feel. It, sometimes it's almost better to recall them from memory instead of having everything fresh in your mind. Because <laughs> I don't know. I it's I like the blur. I like the blur of it. Yeah, I hear that. Um, okay. I, I watch a few things, but I don't have anything. You know pressing to talk about. So I don't plan to. I don't. I don't plan to. You know. I don't even know what I'm trying to say right now. My coffee still hasn't kicked in. <laughs> and I, oh, another thing, too, I can't drink coffee because if I drink coffee, I'll be up too late and I have to go to sleep pretty soon. I have to go. To, I, I never go to bed before midnight, but I have to try to do that tonight because I'm getting up at 6 in the morning to take off for Lexington. And so I can't have coffee this late. I would feel sorry for you except for the fact that I have to get up at 6 every morning because I have to wake up my daughter and get up and get her I noticed that. I see you online every morning at that time. I feel like such a slug because I've been late. I've been late for the past three or four weeks getting up. And then the weird part is I can't sleep when I on the days when I don't have to wake up. I still wake up early, you know, so... But that's good, you know, because if you try if you try to sleep late on weekends, then you get your schedule all mixed up, messed up for Monday. I've, you know, that's one thing you learned a long, long time ago of partying is yeah. you just have to try to keep a, the same schedule every day of the week. Because if you don't, you're going to be like wiped out on Mondays and Tuesdays. So true. Um, okay, welcome to episode twenty six of of uh, twenty seven of Oscar Podcast. I'm here with Craig Kennedy from LivingInCinema.com. And Ryan Adams and me, Sasha Stone from AwardsDaily.com. We're continuing our podcast today, if we can actually get to it and through it, with um, Oscar year 1975, when One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest became one of the few films in Academy history to ever win both lead Oscars, um, uh, picture, director, screenplay, and it actually won supporting actor, too. Um, yeah, no, so it didn't weird. actually. It, it, I'm sorry. It, no, George Burns won. Uh, no, Brad Dourif was expected to win, but 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 George Burns won for the Sunshine Boys. Brad it'd be Dourif great though if won. George. It'd be great if George Burns had been in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, totally. He could have been Thing one is, of the guys. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is actually funnier than the Sunshine Boys. I watched that one earlier this week, sort of thinking it would be another. Uh, Harry and Tonto, where the old man was nominated for an award because he was an old man, and that he actually turned out to be good. But I couldn't stand the thing. I I I, I tend to like Neil Simon movies to a point, but there was something about this one that just rubbed me the wrong way, and it felt like George Burns was sleepwalking through the entire thing. <laughs> Walter Matthau was great in it, but he of course wasn't nominated. So uh, that Burns 
Dorif and Jack Warden, who's also awesome in Shampoo, and Burgess Meredith, who if you're going to give it to an old guy in a movie, it should have been Burgess Meredith for The Day of the Locust. Mm. Oh, yeah, let's, uh, we'll talk about The Day of the Locust, but that movie is really very undervalued, I think, looking back on it. I don't know why it didn't get more attention. It's another one, like, um, I think it was last week I was saying how I was a little bit surprised, not surprised, but, but um, there's a certain breed of movies that seem to have everything going for them on paper that just make them scream Oscar. Last week it was The Great Gatsby, and this week it would have been Day of the Locust, and yet, I mean, it had, um, it was another Paramount picture, it had um, a score by John Barry, it had um, Donald Sutherland and Karen Black, and of course based on, on great literature, and it just didn't really ever catch people's imaginations, and I was trying to figure out why. Directed by Schlesinger, who's like yeah. already been an Oscar winner, and and uh, who who did who was the cinematographer? Conrad Hall, right? Conrad Hall was the cinematographer. Yeah. Actually, it 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 um, dances rings around the Great Gatsby, the seven nineteen seventy four version of the Great Gatsby. I think. I it's, it's in the same it's in the same wheelhouse, the same type of movie. Not the wheelhouse, but the same type of movie uh, as, as far as period and style and and classic literature goes, but I think it's a lot better than The Great Gatsby. Much darker, which um, I think even by Sunday standards, it's a little dark, and I think maybe that's why it was maybe overlooked a little bit, because it really is kind of a downer. The Sunshine Boys, you know, they just really like George Burns. Yeah, it's not as if he was even a major movie star all of his life or anything. He was a TV star and a vaudeville person and a stage person, but he was not even like a movie star. The same situation as like Art Carney uh, that we spoke, right. we spoke about last week. It's not like he not, not like he was due for all the great movies he'd, he'd always made. Yeah, I mean, so on the one hand, you had the Academy really ch- kind of going through, in a way, an artistic renaissance. You had celebrities rejecting... Um, the kind of star system and bullshit that they thought the Academy was. They had, you had this this sort of influx of incredible, brilliant, visionary filmmakers. But then you also had the old brand pushing too. You know, you had that exact thing of Art Carney winning or not saying Art Carney didn't deserve it, by the way, but. Right. And it was a peer group thing too. I think it was a peer group. The there was a there's a there's the demographic of the Academy who enjoyed seeing an older actor get a plum role like that. Mm. Maybe, possibly. That's why we just really hope that Betty White doesn't do a lot of more movies. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because you have like, apparent, according to Inside Oscar, which again was kind of a boring chapter. I'm starting to find that when you already know what the winner is, like everybody already knows, it's it's not a very interesting Oscar year to read about. Uh, everybody knew it was going to be Cuckoo's Nest. There was no question. Um, it had no com- competition, really. Uh, the other nominees against... Um, Cuckoo's Nest was Barry Lyndon, which wasn't going to win. Dog Day Afternoon, which wasn't going to win. Nashville and Jaws, which did not have a Best Director nomination, famously, by Steven Spielberg. And it wasn't the right genre to win. Jaws was not the right genre to win. It was like a close to a horror movie, pretty much, almost. If you look through Oscar history and if if you're paying attention as closely as we are as we go through it, you see that really the films that win have to have an emotional tug. I mean, I know it sounds cliche to say everybody knows that about the Oscars, but it really comes clear in years like this when you look at a movie that has an emotional impact, like Ordinary People or Cuckoo's Nest or something. That is sort of an essential component, usually. And they have to have an, a sort of a prestige gloss to them that when I, as much as, as Nashville and 
is revered now and is looked back as a, as a sort of milestone. Movies like MASH and Nashville were never going to win Best Picture because they're too raw. Mm-hmm. They're, too, they're too homemade looking. It's, a, it's sort of a miracle they even got nominated. And really, at this time and up through, you know, to recent times, the movies that got Best Picture were movies that the public really recognized and rallied around. They didn't just handpick movies out of the blue. They, there was no such thing as what we saw in, for instance, when No Country for Old Men won or The Hurt Locker, you know, these tiny, considerably tiny, obscure movies winning the Oscar because Hollywood is currently in a war with what the public likes because the public likes shit right now. So mm-hmm. they can't give awards away to movies that the public likes that much, right? They have to kind of handpick the movies that they like. That's the difference between now and, and back then where a movie like Nashville and Jaws, you know, and Earthquake, or not Earthquake, but Towering Inferno, movies like that, they, were, um, they captivated the public as well as the Academy, and the Academy kind of rewarded them for that. And I will say, too, it's not as if in 1975 there were a lot of really crap movies to choose from. You have to go down... 15 or 20 or 25 movies from the top before you far, start finding any junk. Which any is junk funny that was because, even popular. So, uh, so audiences didn't even have a choice of going to see a bunch of garbage because they weren't making a lot of garbage well, in the mid-70s. In retrospect, but critics were complaining about it being a terrible Oscar year, saying that um, they picked you know the only decent movies out of an absolutely all. Like Charles Champlin, I think, when he was doing his Oscar preview article, he wrote about what a terrible year it was for movies. I thought that was so funny. Yeah, Honey, you ain't seen you, terrible. <laughs> right, exactly. But I, that's so funny when you look at guys like Charles Champlin and Vincent Canby, what fuddy-duddies they were about what they thought was a good movie, what they what they rated as a good movie. How can you look at Jaws and Nashville and Barry Lyndon and think that those movies aren't worthy of, of, of a high praise? And, no, I don't and, think he was talking about those. I think he was talking about what you know what they had to choose from. That happens but, every year. There's always a core group of people who take a big dump on the current year. They did it this year. They did it last year. They've been doing it forever, and I think that they're just blind and stupid. They're not seeing the forest for the trees or vice versa. Maybe they're missing the trees for the forest. Mm-hmm. Um, there's always great movies, and, and you just have to find them. And I think that people, when they're in the middle of it, just can't see it. It's possible, Yeah. Yeah, I just think I really can't imagine. I can't think that like when the Academy held screenings in 1975, that a lot of Academy members thought that they needed to show up and show up to see Jaws or show up to see Nashville. They didn't maybe think that those were the right kind of movies. Um, just on the face of it, they, they didn't have the word of mouth and they didn't have that gloss I was talking about, that studio gloss, because a lot of the movies that 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 uh, were sort of almost they have an indie feel to them almost. Yeah. Nashville especially. Was Jaws' reputation in its day as good as it is now, or have people sort of rethought it in later years? It seems to me at the time it was just considered a popular film, not necessarily a great film. Well, and it sort of fits in line with the Towering Infernos and the Earthquakes and those kind of movies. But when you compare them, it's obviously so much better. It seems like that, and I kind of thought that too. But then I read the Inside Oscar where... Pauline Kael says something like, you know, uh, she she compares it to some really great um, fil- foreign film director. She said there are moments in this movie that match. I don't think it was Antonioni, um, but it was somebody like that, you know. And mm-hmm. 
I was surprised by that because I, of all the people, I didn't think that Pauline Kael had that kind of pull. But that's really what a movie like Jaws needed, and even today needs, is is the, being anointed by a snooty critic like Pauline Kael. Um, she's sort of like the Manuel Adargas, I suppose, of her time, and and even more so, she was it. Yeah, she, she saw she Nashville it. in a rough cut when it was over three hours long and raved about it before it was even before they even finished cutting it. Yeah, and she gave it such a boost that that it, that it was almost impossible to ignore after her review. They had so much power back then. The critics, um, mm-hmm. they were the they were the voice. They were the bar of what makes a great movie. And now there's so many of them that uh, I think in a lot of ways they've lost their power. They're still as important. They do still set the bar, but I think that's the part part of what you is just the way you phrased it. There there are so many critics now. Back then there was Kale and and all and and almost nobody else. There was who who else besides Paul and Kale was really had had that kind of clout in order to. Well, to, I I can't remember who was interviewing at the New York Times because Inside Oscar doesn't say, but. Whoever was interviewing at the New York Times did give Jaws a bad review. Um, mm. They called it just junky and silly, but it already had um, Pauline Kael's uh, approval. Stamp of approval, right? And mm. that meant made a difference, and it made like a shitload of money, like broke records, right? Box office records, and and yeah. it became a public sensation, and it's still a public sensation to this day. It's considered probably more artistically great now than it ever ever was considered, but at the time it still was was not an insulting. Best mm-hmm. Picture nominee. Like, I think the box office was probably such a big story that it overwhelmed every other kind of consideration and every other analysis. They talked about the popularity and the and the the um, the tickets sold more than anything else. That was the big story. And and also, I don't know that people really knew how to analyze films like that as much back then because it was the first of it, the first of its kind, really. Yeah, and the funny thing about Jaws was that. Um, it really did sort of set up their, you know, kind of ongoing disapproval of Spielberg. Because even at that time, he didn't get a Best Director nomination. They had a documentary crew filming it. He had kind of a hissy fit, which seemed to me sort of tongue-in-cheek. But it was definitely taken to mean, you know, oh, he's pissed that he didn't get an, an Oscar nomination. Mm-hmm. Um, but apparently when anybody got up to win an award, like Jaws won um, sound, I think, and it won editing, and I think it won score. How could it not win score? Mm-hmm. Um, whenever people would thank Steven Spielberg, they say that there's just like a smattering of applause, like not even mm-hmm. a lot of applause. There was definitely resentment back then for him. And part of it had to be, too, because he was 27 years old. Right. You know, I mean, that that never hap- that almost never happens that a director wins at that age. Right, right. So there was resentment for him. Um I have never gotten why they, they don't like Spielberg. I've never gotten it. But I would have to be a Hollywood insider to really know the reason, I suppose. But um, but either way, uh, of all the movies that were nominated that year, Jaws is really the one that has stayed relevant. Um, Nashville, to a degree, because it's tied to Altman, and, and everybody loves Cuckoo's Nest, you know? talk to anybody who knows about movies they'll always say oh yeah god i loved one like nobody ever really says oh that movie did not deserve to win you know i'll say it i'll say it <laughs> i mean yeah i do say I, it's my least favorite of the five nominees it's my least favorite film of the five, not five nominees and i have no desire to ever watch it again really i it's 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 pretty um 
I, um, I know all the good things about it, all the different aspects of it that are good. The performances are fantastic, for sure. But I think the story is just, um, well, it's, just, it's a 1960s story. They went, they, they, it, they, they went back a decade. It, looks, it seems like a movie that would have been great if it, had it been made in the 60s. Hmm. I must have seen it at an influential time in my life because I still really love it. it. It hits me hard every time I see it. it um, it's out of... Out of its time, but I saw it when it was even more out of its time, if that makes any sense, in sort of my um, budding, rebellious high school years. And that just totally fit right into my attitude. It's a little bit heavy-handed, but I think that probably is why I liked it, too. But it kills me every time I see it. Maybe that's what it is, I, just the heavy-handed thing. I did think that it kind of hammered it, hand and hammered its points um, uh, a lot harder than the novel did. But, you know, another thing about Cuckoo's Nest is it had the same thing going for it that Argo had last year. Is it had Michael Douglas as producer? Yeah, right. So that was a big celebrity appeal there. Yeah, and and as we learned from the last time we did, remember when when Nicholson was up for uh, what was the movie that he was up for where he didn't win and he said that was it? Was it the Last Station? The, the last, last detail was it? Yeah, the last detail. Yeah. Where he said yeah. that's I it. I checked into that some more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he won. He won best direct. He won best actor from the New York Film Critics. He won the National Society of, of Film Critics best actor. He won best actor at Cannes that year. And he said that oh, was yeah. all. Those were all great. But he really thought that he he really wanted an Oscar because that movie didn't win anything. Right. And so you that, know what I found out? Sorry to interrupt, but I just since I didn't think we were going to be talking about the Last Detail, but I found this out a few couple of days ago. You know, Hal Ashby directed the Last Detail, and he had won a Best Editing Oscar for In the Heat of the Night in, like, 1968. And when you take pick up your Oscar on Oscar night, it's not engraved with your name yet, of course. You have to turn it in to get your name put on it, and then they give it back to you. He never did that because he always thought that In the Heat of the Night was a collaborative effort, and so he always had his Oscar that didn't have his name on it. And so when Jack Nicholson didn't win Best Actor for The Last Detail, Hal Ashby gave Jack Nicholson his Oscar. No kidding. Yeah. Wow. Isn't that great? That's amazing. So it really meant a lot to him. So for him to come back mm-hmm. and win, that was like the story was vindication, you know. Mm-hmm. Right. They knew it then. He knew it. Um, Plus, it was for Chinatown, too. I probably, probably so many people had voted for him for Chinatown. And so every time that happens, every year that you vote for someone and they lose, all those people are just waiting for the next chance to vote for you again. Yeah. And he would go on to win again for... Um, Terms of Endearment, and then again, lead actor for As Good As It Gets. Thing is, is I I saw the movie when I was like in peak Jack Nicholson fervor. I was like just mad about Jack Nicholson. And at the time, I thought it was great. But when I look back at it now, it's less of a performance to me than the two that he lost for before that. It's It, it seems to have all the seeds of all the things that have kind of grown to irritate me about him that crazy jack persona that he's been doing for the last 30 years kind of thing Mm. so i mean it's good that he got one but it's still for the wrong one and i say that as somebody who likes the movie it's really funny how quickly he he, instead of playing different roles he became over and over he was just playing himself and he was doing the jack thing in movie after movie and people i still i love to see that and everyone else loved to see that but it's really amazingly amazing how fast that that happened to him he really he really did a half a dozen movies where he was absorbed into the role and he became someone else. And then after those first half dozen movies, yes. he was just always Jack. I would agree with that. But I would also say about him that he created so many iconic 
film characters, so many iconic scenes. I mean, that are that are just in the vernacular, like you know, The Shining and Cuckoo's Nest and um, Five Easy Pieces. You know, mm -hmm. he has these great Jack moments that are just unforgettable. And I, yeah, I'm, I'm not criticizing him. I'm just lowering that performance in my estimation a little bit because it's because it was the beginning of sort of a repetition for him. It seemed like the envelope uh, pushing had sort of come yeah. to an end. He still did great work after that, but there were there were seeds of of that Jack persona and everything that he did, including yeah. The Shining, including Batman, including uh, uh, As Good as It Gets, uh, and and. And on down the line. Yeah, he just sort of Whereas forgot. Whereas if you watch, if you watch like Five Easy Pieces or The Last Detail, or even Chinatown, there's a, there's a lot more subtlety. Carnal kind of, knowledge. Yeah. I think my favorite. I've seen those. All that's what I'm saying. All of his early movies, he really became someone else. I think, but then he started just not doing that anymore. And I, I think part of it is that people would always, they knew, they knew. They knew the, the role would be right for him because they knew what he could do. And he chose roles that he knew he would be right for. And I think people even wrote, wrote roles for him. He so became they wrote a Jack star. Nicholson roles. Yeah, he became a star like Humphrey Bogart or, you know, Harrison and Ford. And Pacino or... did the same thing. The same thing happened to Pacino. Yeah. Where he just became, where he would just be playing Al all the time. De Niro, too, to a point. A lot of the great actors have sort of, at a certain point, uh, started repeating themselves a little bit. I guess you can't really hold it against them. Yeah, who can blame them? You know, first of all, it's a business and they're there they're they're it's a living, it's a career. They're there to make money and they and they want to do what's fun and easy for them, a lot of them. And and if it, if a role comes along where they have to stretch, they're able to do it, but if it doesn't, they're still going to take a, they're still going to take plenty of jobs where they don't have to do that. But like you said, stretch. a lot of the roles that are that they do are are designed around them for them. You know, and so they don't want the, that to happen and then them to show up. And it's a totally different person. And it's not Jack Nicholson, you know, like they're hiring that persona. And, and public, the public is going to see Jack Nicholson, you know. Right. And just like they were going to see Redford. I loved the – Redford – Robert Redford actually was a really good actor. Mm -hmm. um, before That's he a great became point. a matinee idol. But, but when he made a movie where he his character died, this is in um, – uh, Adventures of the Screen Trade, the Wim Goldman, the Wim mm -hmm. Goldman book, where um, he says that the, it totally bombed because the public just did not want to accept him as um, anything but the hero. You know, it's like they get these stars get to a point where they're so big that they know that the public just doesn't want to see them do anything else. That's a really good point. That's, I hadn't thought of that before. Yeah. But um, the thing about Cuckoo's Nest that I, I remember so well is that, you know, because I'm older than both of you guys, um, I was totally like around and I remember when these, a lot of these movies came out. So now we're in 1975. So I was 10 years old. I was as old as uh -huh. my niece. And so I remember Cuckoo's Nest. I remember how much, um, Yes, Jaws was a big deal too, but but people were everybody was talking about Cuckoo's Nest, you know. Everybody was talking about Nurse Ratchet. That mm -hmm. character. And that's really my favorite. She's my favorite role in the movie. My favorite part of the movie is Nurse Ratchet. Yeah, she was really really a big deal back then. And so was he, but you know, it's so like going for Oscar that part, you know. It's so mm -hmm. melodramatic and, you know, I don't really like to watch it cuz he gets snuffed out with a pillow. <laughs> I mean, it's a great scene and everything that he, you know, the way it's ha happened and why it happens, you know. 
Mm, yeah, it's not as if any of the movies that you had, all of the movies had really downer endings, you know, except for Jaws, at least a somewhat happy ending, if you count half the people in the movie getting eaten by a shark happy. <laughs> but at least some, some people survived. You know, the, 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 the main heroes that you're rooting for survived, at least in Jaws. But, right. but uh, most, almost everybody else had met with really terrible terrible fates yeah good guys prevail in jaws good guys do not prevail in cuckoo's nest or in barry linden or in dog day afternoon or and I, it's hard to it's, it's, it sounds strange to, to talk about barry linden being a good guy but he was sympathetic he was a sympathetic character and and, and dog day afternoon a bank robber is not exactly a traditional good guy but at least you don't want him to be you didn't want him to be murdered to be killed yeah I unfortunately don't remember Barry Lyndon well enough. All I remember really about it is what it looked like. Yeah, I wouldn't a, consider him sympathetic at all, but that's why I like him. I like him because he's not yeah. sympathetic. He's actually a complete asshole from the entire from the beginning of the film until the very end. And I, I don't know why that's appealing to me, but it is. <laughs> you just got to admire any filmmaker who has the balls to tell that story. And the, of all the characters in Nashville, there's 24 different characters in Nashville and probably one of the sweetest of all, has the worst. He, she has the worst fate at the end of the movie. At all, of all of all the people, it's uh, another thing I, I read about the assassination in Nashville. Uh, that wasn't in the original script. That wasn't in the original screenplay. Altman decided he wanted to put that in there because there were all these other movies about assassinations that had been coming out in the past few years. And he said, "Why do you never see a woman or a celebrity?" getting assassinated. Why don't we try that in this movie? This would be a good opportunity to do that. And the, the screenwriter said, uh, I'm not so sure about that. But she finally, she won her over. She decided to to do that, to to agree to go along with it. And she said, okay, um, who do you want to be the assassin? He said, doesn't matter to me. He said, that's the least important thing to me. But I want the, one of the most likable characters to be killed at the end of the movie. <laughs> and then what? Then just five years later, then John Lennon was assassinated, was killed, mm. and the Washington Post uh, got in touch with Robert Altman and asked him the stupid question: Do you feel responsible because if you showed um, a singer getting killed in Nashville, do you feel responsible for John Lennon? And Robert Altman had the most perfect answer. He said, "Don't you feel, don't you feel responsible? He mm. said, the, these assassins aren't killing the people because they don't like them. They're doing it for the attention. They're doing it for the, for the publicity, and that's your responsibility." Whoa, good for him. That's heavy-handed, yeah. dude. That is hardcore. Yeah, freaking New York Post. It's not changed a, a bit since then either. The Washington Post. That was. Oh really? Yeah. Like the New York Post. Yeah. Wow, that's a story. <laughs> yeah. That's an incredible story. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. I wish I knew week. more about Nashville. This is horrible and so embarrassing. Oh, I love that movie so much. I, I haven't just seen love it that movie. So I could watch long. it again and again. It's crazy. It's so crazy. It's like the only one of Robert Altman's like major movies that I have only seen once and a long, such a long time ago that I barely remember it. I really should have rewatched that before we talked. <laughs> I'm so sorry, but. Um, what can you say, would you, what would you guys say about that? Like 1975, you know, all the movies that were up except Jaws for Best Picture were not um, good guys win and prevail, sentimental favorites. And uh, they were really about the establishment. They were a, a, yet another, you know, kind of doomsday report of of life you know this is it um you're fucked you know you can't win 
you know, any spirit is going to be snuffed out of you like it was in Cuckoo's Nest, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I'm looking at a list of the movies that are that are listed and sort of ranked as, in order, and I'm looking at, at the at the top 30 ranked movies of 1975, and I can't, I don't see any offhand where the good guy wins. So not as if they had a lot of good guy winning movies to choose from. Yeah, and I have to just read the, well, no, go ahead, Craig, you're going to say something, go ahead. Uh, even in the nominees, of, of, in the lower category nominees, there's a bunch of movies that aren't exactly upbeat, you know, blockbuster material. We talked about Day of the Locust earlier. I don't know if any of that audio is going to come out or not, but um, that's super dark. Shampoo, which is one of my favorites, is super dark. Um, it's just... Uh, I don't know, man. It's the seventies. Things sucked, <laughs> no, and people weren't afraid to 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 write about things sucking, and people weren't afraid to make movies about things sucking, and people were actually pretty uh, okay with going to buy a ticket to the movies to see that because that's what they were feeling. It was the end of the Nixon era, era, and error, error and era, <laughs> and um, and people were just fed up. It was the end of Vietnam and the end of Nixon, and people were just—I think people were just really thought the world was falling apart, and they didn't mind seeing movies that reaffirmed, that affirmed what they were feeling. How much different is that from what we have today, when things were really stinking? We were getting the artist and the King's Speech and stuff like that. Yeah. In terms of in terms of winners, yeah, it's like I the audi- audiences and and the awards people have just chickened out. I can't explain that except for possibly. Antidepressants. I was going to say that Prozac. <laughs> oh, really? Isn't it right? It's the Prozac nation now. You think? People have, de- yeah. you know, people have decided they don't want to think about it anymore because maybe they realized in the seventies thinking about it and dwelling on it didn't really help anything, and it didn't make them feel any better. So let's try to just uh, do something that will at least let us feel good for two hours. It's so strange. I mean, the Academy, when you look at it like that, it, it has not progressed in the least bit. Um, when you look at it like King's Speech and Arti- The Artist, you know, those are not what anyone would consider the best pictures of those years. It's a joke. Mm-hmm. They're the pictures, they're the favorites in the awards race, you know. The so already we feel that way. Wait until 10 years from now when we're looking back and it's like, wow, really? It's going to get even worse. I mean, that's that's the beauty about these films in the 70s is that that people challenged themselves and they actually made art in the process instead of trying to comfort people they asked questions and 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 the, the movies stand the test of time the the movies now that are supposedly the awards worthy ones are not going to be well thought of in 10 years but things start to change because the boomer generation stopped being anti-establishment they turned into yuppies and they started making a lot of money in the 80s and then you know as things progressed to the 90s and then now the the modern era we had you know 9/11 changed things changed the way people saw movies and um the the rise of the fanboy and the blockbuster changed the way people saw movies and oscar movies and these guys are just getting older and they're not mm-hmm. they're not leaving the academy they're still there voting and they just like their nice light little movies just like they like their you know bowl of chicken soup with 60 minutes on sunday nights mm-hmm. You know? Another thing, too, is Nashville costs $4 million to produce, and half of that $4 million was just for the cast, you know, just for all, all of the big-name stars, not even all that big-name, but at least well-known stars. But, uh, so, and it, so a movie that costs $4 million doesn't have to um, attract a huge audience. 
and it doesn't matter if it's a downer. But in order to make $100 million, you really can't be a downer. People, $100 million worth of tickets sold, uh, I, people are not going to, there are not enough people buying tickets to see movies that are going to make them feel bad. I just wonder when it stopped being best picture of the year and it started being Oscar movies. You know, was it always like that? Did people always look at the Oscars like, oh, those are Oscar movies? Those aren't the movies I care about. Those are Oscar movies, you know. I think there's always been like that to a certain extent. We can probably look back and find examples of, of exceptions, but I think more often than the exceptions, we'll find that the Oscar movies ordinarily won, won out. It's sort of like what you would call, mm. quote-unquote, prestige picks. Yeah. You know? I think that's why we're enjoying talking about the 70s so much. Is as We talked about it a little bit when we first started. It's when... When, when art and commerce and awards all sort of aligned in this miraculous, miraculous streak of, of wonderful films where art movies were making money at the box office and they were winning awards at the Oscars. Mm, it, it was a short, relatively short period of time, but it was a, a, a remarkable one. That's a great way to put it, actually, that it was the, those three forces working at once that made the 70s stand out. Um, nef- definitely, they've never repeated that decade. Grown-ups still went to see movies in the 70s, for one thing. Uh, right. the, the, multipl- the multiplexes hadn't even been built yet, and, and so they weren't overrun by teenagers. And when, when, when theaters began to be a gathering place for teenagers, grown-ups stopped going, especially when there are more grown-up options to stay home and watch on TV. Right, cable. And, and when the Internet began, too, in, in, the, in the 80s and, and 90s, there was, there was another option to keep grown-ups at home. Right, and and they definitely, um, television got better, cable happened, you know, and Mm -hmm. now we've got movies on demand, you know. Back when I was a kid, there was like one channel, the movie channel, Mm -hmm. um, and it played movies sometimes, but it was nothing like it is now. Probably in the 70s, it was a a pretty decent grown-up adult date to take your date to the movies uh, for for if you were in your 20s or 30s, but that would not be appropriate date now. I don't think so much anymore. It's more of a teenage date. Take your date to the movies on the weekend, don't you Well, think? I think that the adults still go, but they go to, mm-hmm. like, the little art houses, you know, the mm-hmm. senior yeah, they, matinee. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my adult friends that I know, the women that I know, the moms at my daughter's school and stuff, I'm telling you, they probably saw one movie a year. Mm-hmm. And, 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 it, and a date would be a good option for them like date night let's go to a movie you know but only during oscar season usually but 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 gone was that must see you know i must go see this movie um adults saying i must go see this movie you know nowadays it's they don't you're right it's more like Mm -hmm. the 13 to 22 year olds Talking about a really great adult movie in 1975, Craig, you mentioned it briefly, but talking about Shampoo, and this is another movie where the role was not only written with the star in mind, the star wrote the movie himself. Warren Beatty wrote one version of the screenplay, and Robert Town wrote one version of the screenplay. They had this idea, they talked about it together, and they wanted to do a movie that was sort of about um, the the Los Angeles um, sleep-around culture, but they didn't want to make it overtly about Hollywood, so they made it about hairdressers. And mm-hmm. so Warren Beatty wanted to play the role. He wrote the screenplay for himself, and then Robert Town wrote another version. And they were so different, they couldn't find any way to, to combine the two versions. 
in the late 60s, 1968, I think it's when they wrote it. And so they gave up on it because they couldn't find any way to agree on, on how to combine their two versions. And that's when they, they turned to Hal Ashby in the mid-70s to see if he could find a way to, to work, at, work it out. And so they, they rented a room at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel and hold up for 10 days and put them in separate rooms. And Ashby would go back and forth between their rooms trying to get them to compromise. No and they kidding. Came up with it. Yes, in, in 10 days. And Warren Beatty has said it was the most creative 10 days of his entire life. But Shampoo is probably my favorite grown-up adult comedy. It's, in, it's definitely in my top five grown-up adult comedies of all time. It's really it, It's not even that laugh-out-loud funny. It's just amusing all the way through. And you, it's really pretty sad and tragic, especially the last half an hour. It just gets sadder and sadder as you start to see this guy's life unravel and all of his plans come apart because of the, of the, the cad that he is, you know, and the way right. he, he runs through women. And um, he ends up empty-handed. Yeah, he was quite something, that Warren Beatty. Mm-hmm. Talk about oh someone gosh. who just gave up, you know? Um, I don't know what happened there. At least, at least he he held on long enough to make Reds, and that was a, a masterpiece. But after that, it, it, I don't know what happened. I think he grew up and got comfortable. He got married, and or whatever his relationship is with what's her name, they're, they're comfortable together. And I think... Uh, when people get a little bit older and their their lives sort of come together, I think they get a little um, a little placid and a little less creative and a little less um, a little less angry and and a lot le- a lot fewer creative juices. Yeah, less hungry, less hungry, and he'd already mm-hmm. made it by then too. And he had it, like you said, what else, when you reach the the pinnacle, there's a really a limit when you get to the top of the mountain. There's no place else to go. Yeah, if you're not going to win for reds. What do you else do you got? You know, it's right. like, but um, I remember talking to David Fincher and him telling me that um, about filmmaking that you know this is this is a he says it's all a huge fight. He said every project you do is a fight, and he said it just you just get to a point where you don't want to fight anymore. He's like you have to fight with the studio when you want to make the movie. You have to fight with the studio when you want to, you know, when about the script. You have to fight with the studio about the budget. You have to fight with the studio about the star. You have to fight with the studio about the edits. You have to to fight with them about the censors. You have to fight about the marketing, you know, Mm -hmm. and then Mm -hmm. about the awards race. He said it's just at a certain point it becomes exhausting. Mm -hmm. He said and only a few people can really stay in that, and and those are people who can pretty much write their own – job description, somebody like Clint Eastwood or Woody Allen, uh, where nobody questions what they do, you know, they're, they're, Mm -hmm. they're untouchable. And Spielberg is another one. Spielberg, you know, because they always turn in movies on time and they always make money. That's the big thing. That's a big part of it right there is, is uh, being able to make a lot of money that you can, it's a good cushion. It's a good, it looks good. In order to get a to launch your next project, it's always good to, to, if your previous movie made $200 million. But yeah. just the run that, that Warren Beatty was on in the mid-'70s and the, what he did with Julie Christie, three movies in a row with Julie Christie, McCabe and Mrs. Miller and Shampoo and then Heaven Can Wait, just mm. three absolutely fantastic movies. Can I just say, Julie Christie, something else. Oh, my gosh. She was so Aye. beautiful and smart and fiery, you know. Fantastic She's awesome, but shampoo. I still have a total man crush on Warren Beatty. I can't get over Warren Beatty. <laughs> if I could be anyone, I would be him in the 70s. Or like Woody Allen said, he'd like to be reincarnated as Warren Beatty's fingertips. 
That's a great quote. I know. Or does it? I just want to see them together naked. It's just too bad they didn't do more. Didn't do any X-rated movies. Well, he's got kind of some sexy scenes in um, in Reds. But speaking of Jack Nicholson, Jack Nicholson kind of upstages him in that movie in the sexy department. As mm. Eugene O'Neill, you know, he's he's the one that that all all everybody swoons over. Right. Um. But, but let's. As, can I just really quickly, just to blow your guys' minds for one minute, read you the directors who were up for director in 1975? Milos Forman, who won, Robert Altman, Federico Fellini, Stanley Kubrick, Sidney Lumet. <laughs> it's like, it's the master class. I know, and everyone absolutely deserving because every one of their movies are really just, just the, probably their best, among their best work. It's insane. And I love how much they loved Fellini. I wish that they had balls that big now. Mm-hmm. And that was, uh, I, I ran, I, I, a few couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago or so, I, I talked about Fellini's Satyricon, and I said that by that time they were just nominating him because they realized they hadn't given him an Oscar yet, and they realized that, that they, they needed to try to make up for that. And by then he had already run out of ideas, but he had one more masterpiece in him, and that was Amarcord. Mm. And that's what he was nominated for this year in 1975, right? Wow, wow. Yeah, um, which it had previous year won for a foreign film, didn't it? Um, I think you're right. Yeah, I think you're right about that. That's strange. Yeah. Was that always the case? It's nominated the year before for foreign film because that's when it's put up, when it comes out in its own country, yeah, but then it doesn't actually come out in, in this country until a year later. So it's not eligible for the other categories until it actually has its run in, in New York and Los Angeles, is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, Except they I think figured that, that out still... now where they've mm-hmm. they've mastered that. So now you have mm-hmm. a foreign film coming in with its director also. Uh, like Amour oh. last year with Michael Haneke and um, Talk. Absolutely. Yeah, we get movies so fast from around, the, from around the world now. I'm looking at some of the great foreign films that were made in 1975. Like, for instance, um, let me look here real quick. Picnic at Hanging Rock um, mm-hmm. from Australia, which God, we would not even great. think is really that foreign. But it didn't come to America until 1977. It won, it won its BAFTA awards in 1977. And the same for The Passenger and for Seven Beauties was in 1977, although it was made in 75. Picnic at Hanging Rock is a great movie. Mm-hmm. It was one yeah. of the creepiest movies I've ever seen. It's so beautifully directed. Um, a couple of things about that Oscar year that are interesting to note. One is that Ellen Burstyn complained publicly about the lack of uh, good female roles for women, which I thought was so funny, um, as opposed to female roles for men, though. <laughs> I mean, female roles, period. She was complaining about them. And she had asked Academy members to just not vote for, for Best Actress as a protest. And she took she got some heat from... Um, from um, Louise Fletcher, who called her up and said, "Why would you say that? You know, why, well, why would you say something like that to, about my performance?" And she was complaining because she just thought that the Isabella Johnny and the story of Adele H. and Margaret and Tommy, who's great, Glenda Jackson and Hedda, which I haven't seen, but I have to take the Academy's word for it. They love Hedda, Hedda, Glenda Jackson was like the Meryl Streep. Of the and you can imagine what she would do with a role like Hedda. Oh, my yeah. God. I haven't seen it either, but you can just imagine it. And then Hester Street, which you guys were talking about earlier with Carol Kane. I don't know what kind of a female part that is, if it's a good one or not. Oh, yeah. Um, it's all her. It's, she carries the movie. It's all about her. She's a central role. Yeah. yeah I know that a story... It's a really surprising nominee, though, not because it's not deserving, but just I'm surprised that it managed to get Oscar's attention because it's a really tiny 
tiny film in its own way. It didn't cost very much money. It was black and white. It, it was about a, a, a unique place and time in history that it just, it, it doesn't, I'm surprised that it got Academy's attention. I'm glad that it, it did. But I'm it looks really inexpensive. When I first saw it in, in Chicago at an art house theater long ago, maybe because it was on the big screen and it's, everything is more impressive on a big screen, I was more impressed with the production design and the, and the, the production values. And the, it looked a lot more expensive when I, in, in my memory. But when I watched it again yesterday, it really looks very low budget. Really, it's, it really takes place in about two rooms. And both rooms, although they're really authentic looking, they're like stage sets, basically. Mm. And it's a very stagey movie, and it, like Craig said, it's in black and white. And it must have been made for, who knows, maybe $200,000 or something. So you can imagine, can't wonder how it even managed to get the attention of the Academy, like you say. Maybe yeah. because it was a weak year for actresses, I don't know. Or not, not so much a weak year for actresses, but a weak year for parts. It did have the Jewish aspect going for it, and that's always been a big, uh, kind of a big thing that, you know, that in Hollywood. They really, and a, a movie like that had never been made about the, the uh, Jewish experience in uh, immigrant experience in, in 1896 or whenever it takes place. But it's right. true that there were not a lot of strong female-led um, projects, either up for Best Picture, unless you count that. I mean, Nashville's really the only one. Um, but period, you know, most of these stories are male driven narratives, kind of a lot like what you see now, which people just accept and, and don't question. So I thought it was interesting that Ellen Burstyn would even make a point to say anything at all. That's really, And that's also brings me to my second thing, which is that, um, a funny thing happened because, uh, they, they have a selection committee in the, in the best song category and they, did their first round of selections and they didn't include the most ta- one of the most talked about songs of the year, which was Diana Ross um, from theme from mahogany. Do you know where you're going to? Do you like the things? And I know this very well because my mother was a huge Diana Ross fan and we not only saw that movie, but she played that soundtrack constantly in our house. So I knew it really well, but it didn't even get nominated in the first round. And there was a huge uproar about it in the Academy. And so the, this is something I've never heard the Academy do. Maybe they've done it in the past, but since I've been looking at it, I've never seen them do anything like this. Like nowadays, if you complain about the Academy, they dig their heels in. They mm. don't give an inch. You know, like if it's about this thing getting disqualified or that thing, they don't care. They just keep doing what they're doing. But back then, they decided to throw out the selection committee nominees and have the whole branch nominate songs just because the, mu- the entire music branch the entire or, music branch there were 200 of them and they ended up nominating mahogany and uh, the other person who was upset was robert altman because he said only one nashville song was nominated and that was i'm easy and that actually ended up winning and so even after all that the mahogany song didn't win it's the best song it's my favorite song from nashville can i can i segue real quick into a little story about nashville and i'm easy you know, Keith Carradine sings that song in I'm Easy, and he's, a, he's also a cat in Nashville. He sleeps with almost every female character in the movie. They filmed all of his scenes in his hotel room that take place in his motel room in Nashville in one day, and he just stayed in bed all day, and they brought different actresses in to jump in bed with him to, to film all the various scenes that would be scattered throughout the film. Mm. But the most important, back to the song, the song um, issue, um, before Altman even had a script in mind for Nashville, Keith Carradine was a teenager, and he came to hang out at Robert Altman's house because Robert Altman was just that kind of guy. He always had people, uh, a cluster of people hanging around with him. And Keith Carradine brought his guitar, and he played I'm Easy, and he played um, 
that other song that he sings in the movie, which I can't think of right now. And Altman said, those are fantastic. I want to build a movie around those songs. And he had Joan Tewksbury then write the screenplay. And those were the only two songs that were written into the screenplay. The reason that Keith Carradine had written that song, I'm Easy, he was a teenager then. He was in the Broadway production of Hair. And there was a girl Mm. in Hair who he wanted to lay. He wanted to go to bed with her. Her (laughs) name was Shelley Plimpton. And he wrote this song on his own, I'm Easy, for her trying to seduce her. And so Keith Carradine and Shelley Plimpton, the song worked. He seduced her. They had an affair that lasted for about three months, and they had a baby, and the baby is Martha Plimpton. No kidding. Yeah, that's right. No kidding. Did they get married? or? No, it was just a three-month affair that he got her pregnant, and they didn't They didn't ever marry as far as I know. Because she kept her mother's name right. Shelley Plimpton is her mother, so she kept her mother's name. Oh, my God, but, but she looks but, so much it, like her father. Right, exactly. So she's a Carradine. She's a Carradine. Her, da- her daddy's Keith Carradine on the basis of that song that was the basis of the movie Nashville. Oh, my God. I had no idea. What a great That's my story. Nashville song. The 70s are where it's at. That's all I have to say. God, that's incredible. Um, I remember Shampoo being a pretty big deal back then. Um, It didn't get a Best Picture nomination, though. Isn't that strange? Yeah, I guess because it was just so top-heavy, there was was no room for it. It got edged out. Shampoo was fantastic. I mean, like I said, I just love that movie. The reason that that it... uh, You know, another thing about Shampoo is it has a really... Um, really strong political slant to it throughout the entire movie. It takes place in 1960, even though it was made in 1975, it takes place in 1968 on election eve, the night before Nixon and Agnew were elected. And so all throughout the movie, you see uh, campaign signs for Nixon and Agnew, Agnew, and you see them on television in the background making ironic speeches because by then, by 1975, you know what's going to happen to them. And so it's all, they look ridiculous. But, uh, Beatty and Robert Town wrote their two versions of the screenplay in 1968, thinking that it was going to be made in 1968, and of course it wasn't. But um, there was a point I was. Anyway, that's part of the part of the why I like the movie so much is it's a period piece. Even it it takes place in '68, and it refers back to all those Nixon um, uh, uh, campaign things going on at the time. No kidding. So that's the undercurrent going on there. It fits in its own time, though, and it's kind of prescient in that it's sort of looking ahead towards the end of all of the good times. Um, it, it reminds me of Rules of the Game a lot, Renoir's uh, 1939 Sight and Sound Constant nominee, um, in that it, it, it sort of looks at a class structure and a specific cultural time and place and is sort of looking at it unwinding. And... Um, you can sort of see that going on in Shampoo, because and I think it's represented sort of by how the main character ends up. It's like he's he's living the life, and yet it doesn't end well for him at all. Mm-hmm. And it is a it's a comedy of morals and a comedy of errors and a comedy of morals. When when everyone who's everyone Robert, Warren Beatty sleeps with their, all the women in the movie. That was another point of contention between Beatty and and Robert Town is Beatty had written the movie for himself and he hadn't really written very the, the female roles very strongly. So all of the strong female roles in the movie were written by Robert Town. Those are all his scenes that he wrote. Wow. But, Another similarity between Rules of the Game and Shampoo, and it may maybe explain why Shampoo was not nominated, is, you know, we talked a couple of weeks ago about how when they showed Rules of the Game in France, uh, people threw fruit at the screen and, and booed and yelled and, and stormed out because they thought it was insulting to French culture. Well, when, although Beatty and Robert Town tried to disguise 
the movie as being about Beverly Hills hairdressing, you know, Melia, uh, what it was really about and what, what it was about Hollywood. And when they premiered it in Santa Barbara, it didn't get a very good reception at all. So they thought, we're given another chance in Beverly Hills and we'll invite a bunch of Academy members and, and uh, see what they think. And all of the male producers loved it, but none of the producers' wives or mistresses or girlfriends oh, liked it very much. No kidding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they, because they saw right through it. They saw what Warren Beatty was trying to say, and they didn't appreciate it at all. Mm. So none of the women in the Academy probably cared much for this movie. Yeah, it's tricky, isn't it? It's a... Yeah. Um... I know that Which there's is, like a scene where Julie Christie blows him under the table. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, she gets really wasted, and she's talking to this really rich guy, and he says that he can he can do he can really be good for her, and he can he can get her anything. And she says, "I'm sure you can get me anything you want." And he says, "And he says, what is it that you want most of all?" And she points her finger at Warren Beatty. And she says, "I want to suck his cock." Oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> and then she proceeds to do so. She she drops down underneath the table and, and does it. It's funny, isn't it? Because that was in the, the the height of feminism and, you know, the sexual revolution and women were supposed to be responsible for their own orgasms, you know. Mm-hmm. And yet at the same time, you know, were American women really ready for that? They, you know, I now remember shampoo being, you know, discussed as being sexist a lot. And that's what a lot of people thought about it, um, even though the, the whole point of the movie is the jokes on him. But. The interesting thing about it is that, you know, he's a hot number, you know, and if you're a woman who's after him, what are you going to do other than be aggressive sexually? And why is that necessarily a bad thing? Um, It's also kind of unfair uh, that women are always judged differently and um, people of color the same way that they can't be kind of complex characters. They have to just be always depicted in in a positive light. Mm -hmm. Um, and I agree that I prefer strong women roles or any kind of plot. Like, for instance, Jessica Chastain, she's not really that likable in Zero Dark Thirty, but it's a lead role, and it's about her, and it's about the evolution of her character, you know? Um, she doesn't have to be good, but they have to be interesting. They can't just be one-dimensional, uh, mm-hmm. a, you know, a cliche, a one-off. I didn't think that any of the characters in Shampoo, the female characters, were cliches. They all seemed to be funny and interesting people, you know, who just happened to want to have sex with him. Yes, absolutely right. And they all did eventually prevail because they all got fed up with him and stood up to him and, and told him they were done with him. So he left. He was left standing with his dick in his hand, yeah. and they did what they wanted to do, and they, they all went out. On, they decided to. they didn't need him anymore. Right, and he's crying about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Literally. Yeah. <laughs> it's not as if they always made all the the choices that were, I mean, it, and Julie Christie turned from the guy that she chose instead of Warren Beatty is not exactly an honorable pathway either. She decided to go with the, with the rich guy. Right. Who's going to take her to Acapulco. But, but all the same, at least she, she didn't, she didn't, she, she, she was, she wasn't seduced by him uh, to the, to the extent that she couldn't get over him. Right. But you can kind of see where Ellen Burstyn's coming from, like shampoo with the sex, you know, the bitch in uh, one floor of the cuckoo's nest, you know, the, you know, um, the kind of, you know, whoever that woman in, in um, Barry Lyndon is, what's her name? Um, she's Marissa Berenson. She's kind of a statue, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, 
In the story of Adele H., um, Isabel Adjani plays basically a crazy woman. She's uh, Victor Hugo's daughter, and she travels across the ocean to find her lover, this British lieutenant who basically used her and then dropped her and then ran off to Canada. And she stalks him through the entire movie and slowly goes crazy. Mm. And yet, I mean, it's it's is it anti-woman or isn't it? Because the whole movie belongs to her. She was, I think, 19 when they filmed it, and um, she's great. She's really, really good in it, much better than you would think from a, from a person that age. Yeah. She's so beautiful, too. Talk about beautiful. Mm. Oh, my God. I haven't seen it. Now I want to see it. Yeah. Um, that's it's the good. thing. It's that, You should check it out. I think yeah. that um, what Ellen Burstyn was talking about, she ain't seen nothing yet. You know, like what you see mm. now. It's like back then, you know, that might have been coming off the, the earlier part of the 70s and, you know, decades where women's movies really ruled the Academy and Hollywood. You know, strong leading ladies were, were it, you know. Mm. Uh, Betty Davis, Catherine Hepburn, you know, Joan Crawford. Just all of them were, were so powerful and, and movies were designed for them and written for them. I don't think what Ellen Burstyn is seeing is the beginning of a downward trend. Uh, made worse in the 80s by the Julia Roberts phenomenon mm-hmm. uh, where Pretty Woman came along and suddenly she was the top of the box office and you didn't have to do much. You just had to be a pretty young girl, you know, and that continues on to this day. Isabel was pretty and she was young, but she's better than that. I, and I think her history and the years that followed that sort of bear that out. Well, it remains to be seen whether Jennifer Lawrence will be able to do that. But she definitely did. And, and he supposedly had written the movie a long time before. And by the time he got around to making it, he couldn't have he couldn't have done. He said he couldn't have done it without her. Um, and it, And I think he's. He's probably right. I mean, maybe Ellen Burstyn didn't see the movie. Maybe she wrote it off because it's another movie about a female character who isn't perfect. Um, I, see, I don't I, know. I think that but you she's, have to... she's great in it, and I wouldn't I wouldn't want to underrate her just because she's pretty. I wouldn't do that, and I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that I would also judge French movies and French directors' movies that come out of France totally differently than I would movies that come out of Hollywood. Um, I'm yeah. just saying her general comment about the kinds of movies that were being honored, I think, is, is a, was a valid one then, but it was nothing compared to what you see now. Right. But um, but in France, you'll see when you go to Cannes, they, they don't have a problem telling stories about women. Not at all. You know, most of their movies do involve strong female characters, and they have no problem with that. Old, young, pretty, you know, ugly, it doesn't matter to them. They tell good stories. Um, but here it's a to- whole whole different thing. I'm sorry, I should have specified. I didn't mean to include um, Isabella Johnny and and um, that movie in with what it's, I'm talking about. Well, and I wasn't it's, arguing with you so much as I was arguing with Ellen Burstyn. But it's possible she wasn't even talking about that movie. She might have been just looking at the American movie. I think so more than that because we've never even now don't have a problem with finding great performances. Look at we had two two we had Rust and Bone with Marianne Cotillard and we had Amour with. Um, Emmanuel Riva, those two great performances came out of France, you know. I will say, too, about Louise Fletcher, as much as I think she's fantastic in One Through Flow with the Cuckoo's Nest, um, she didn't really go very far after that. She didn't really do much with her Oscar after that. There's just because there just weren't any more roles. She and the kind of role that Louise Fletcher had as Nurse Ratchet, that's the kind of thing that maybe Melissa Leo would have played or or it, it's almost a, almost like a character role. Yeah, mm-hmm. God, or than a lead they, actress role. 
Would they would they even make that movie today? So many of these movies they wouldn't have made today, I think. Nashville. Shampoo, yeah, Nashville wouldn't have been made. Shampoo would never be made. I don't That's think Nashville, yeah. Um Well, it's it's not gonna get prettier as we head out of the seventies and into the eighties. You know, this is this is like definitely the last great era. But um as much as Robert Altman loved women, and he had he had women involved in, in really high-ranking roles in his production staff, and his writers were women, and, and he his he had great roles for women. They weren't always really strong roles. Most of the roles in Nashville were pretty weak. So it's interesting that Lily Tomlin is the only nominee from Nashville, and she was the strongest female character in Nashville. And one funny Oscar story I have about Lily Tomlin, you know, she had been, all she had ever done before Nashville was uh, Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In, that TV show, that variety show, where she played like Ernestine and and the phone operator and, or whatever, that little girl who was on the rocking chair, what's her name? Mm-hmm. Edith Ann, yeah. all that kind of stuff. So that's all that she was known for. Lily Tomlin never made a movie before. So this was her big break and she got an Oscar nomination her first time out of the gate. And so what she decided to do on Oscar night was dressed up in costume as a 1950s glamour queen with a fur coat and an actual tiara on her head. She showed up at the Oscars. Who would do that nowadays, first of all? Dress up in costume on Oscar night on the red carpet. And when as much important as it's put on fashion now. So she had on this big fur coat and a tiara. And she was pretty sure that she was going to win. She had been told that she had a really good shot at winning. Mm. And she was going to, in her acceptance speech, she was going to say, I guess you all think I've gone Hollywood. (laughs) <laughs> but she didn't get a chance to say that because oh. um, Lee Grant won. Oh, yeah. That's, what's that. <laughs> that's my Oscar night story about Lily Tomlin. I, I, I don't know if that's in the um, Damien Bona book or not. I try to. I know that you've got that angle covered. You, you have so, so many great stories from that book. I try to find other sources for stories. I don't know if that's in the book yeah, or not. It isn't. I mean, it might be. I, I kind of, <laughs> I didn't really find so much interesting about this year to, in that <laughs> book, particularly that <laughs> um, I really wanted to comb over, but uh, some of it was interesting. Um, mainly the stuff, what Ellen Burstyn said and the thing about the song category, but it was such a predictable year. Like everyone knew going in exactly what was going to win. There was no question about it. It just, it was cuckoo's nest to lose. Right, and I, that must have been. That must have just been the 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 buzz in Hollywood is is that people the word got out that that was going to be the winner just as it just as it happens nowadays just as it's happened yeah. the last two or three years in a row, even though you know that there are other great movies who are that are really deserving, there's no question about what's going to win. Well, by, there, by, there was yeah exactly. There was one funny story that that he kept bringing up, which was that uh, Milos Forman had two twin sons. And they kept making jokes about it because um, whenever Cuckoo's Nest would lose anything, the kids would stand up and cheer to make a point that, that Cuckoo's Nest should have won. And he kept getting in there. And Milos Forman kept saying, sit down, sit down, you know. And when he finally won Best Director, he went up there and he said, you know, well, of course, his little twins just went nuts. But, um, but he went up there and he said that he was relieved to find out that Hollywood wasn't, you know... Um, you know, didn't have prejudices against foreign directors, basically, is what he said. That's great. And that That's they were great. open-minded. And then backstage, his son said um, that he wanted to go see Jaws was one of his things. <laughs> was one of the number one things he wanted to do. Related to that, I know I keep talking about Hal Ashby. I know you get sick of it. But if we don't talk about Hal Ashby in the mid-'70s, there's no other chance to talk about him because – 
eyesight he's about to be done with. He's about to, his career is about to, to come to an end in the, at the end of the 70s. You know, they offered One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest to, to Hal Ashby in the early 70s, and he was all enthusiastic about doing it. And he said, well, I, I'll do it, but I've got to have Jack Nicholson. And they said, uh, it's going to be a low-budget movie. We can't really afford Jack Nicholson. And so he said, well, if I can't have Jack Nicholson, I'm not going to do it. So he, he bowed out of it. So then three years later, Michael Douglas was the producer, and they had all the money. They had a, a bigger budget, and they were able to get Jack Nicholson. So Hal Ashby was fuming oh. because they had taken it away from him. See, that would have been his big Oscar shot if they had gotten Jack Nicholson for him. Oh, wow. Well, um, half the budget for Cuckoo's Nest went to pay Jack Nicholson's salary. Yeah. Isn't that funny? Yeah, it's a big deal, but it was really important, you know, and it's still really important, you know. I went to see Oblivion over the weekend, and Oblivion made a boatload of money over the weekend, and it's a pretty decent sci-fi movie, but it wouldn't have made the money that it made without the Tom Cruise name, although he's not my favorite by any means, and he doesn't really bring that much to the movie that he doesn't always ever do. It's not as if he, not as if the movie needed him, but the movie, the movie needs a name like that in order to to to, to make money. Yeah. Well, this has been sort of a slow going but interesting and informative podcast. I think. I liked it. It seems like there were a couple of other things I wanted to bring up. There's some other movies down down the down the list that some really interesting things, like for instance, Great Gardens was a documentary that was made in 1975. It was not even nominated. Hmm. You know, and you know how much we all love Grey Gardens. Right. That's so funny. That took them a while to catch up with that one. The documentary category is really great now, but I don't think in the, back then that they really, I don't think documentaries were as well respected. I believe what won that year was a movie called um, Skiing Down Everest, which is probably loads of fun, but it's, you can compare Skiing Down Everest <laughs> to Grey Gardens. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, nowadays, Grey Gardens would get pretty close. I don't know if it could still yeah. win with that crowd. You never know. You know, they don't like yeah. anything that makes you feel icky. Right. You know, it all has to be, you know, easygoing all the way. You know, make me feel good. Good things happen. I like what we're doing, not only just talking about the, the specific films and the specific awards and the, and the filmmakers who win the Oscars, but we're looking at maybe the trends and what was going on in the 70s overall with the politics and also the, the overall um, zeitgeist or gestalt or whatever you want to call it about, the, about what, it, what it was about the 70s that made people able and willing to accept making movies that had downer endings and going to say, pay to see movies that were downers. Well, one thing about the 70s that was really, really important to remember, and it kind of echoes up to, to today, if we want to think about it that way, um, is the Vietnam War. You know, it, it mm -hmm. really, it was such a sort of an unequivocal American failure. Um, right. And there were so many things happening at once, which was that the veterans were coming home to a public that didn't really embrace them or care about them. It took a while for that to for them to be recognized for the um, for the work and the service that they did because of the people were so down on the war. Mm -hmm. And then you had um, this idea that, you know, Nixon was in, in the White House and, and um, when was Watergate? It was 72, right? Well, Watergate, I believe, was uh, 74, maybe. 74. So uh, there uh, you go, Watergate. Uh, um, mm -hmm. Our president is corrupt, you know, right. corrupt president corrupt war, you know, no hope, no idealism. Um, it's really in the hands of the individual. 
kind of, mm-hmm. and and you see that you see that running through a lot of these movies. I think um, there isn't an, an you know an obedience to power like you're going to see coming up in the eighties mm-hmm. um, and nineties to a degree. And now what I'm interested in is how the war on terror and the kind of overall paranoia since nine eleven has affected the Oscar race. Um, the only movie that has even gone near that topic is Hurt Locker. And you could make an argument for No Country for Old Men being kind of in that vein and The Departed. But mm-hmm. but once those movies ended and they started having 10 Best Picture nominees, everything changed. Now with the Boston bombing and, and paranoia is going to reach a fever pitch, especially against Muslims, who knows what's going to happen to this, to our culture. All right. It's interesting that you mentioned No Country for Old Men because it, it took place in the, in the 80s. And usually if you're going to make a period film, you go back further. You don't oh, make a movie was that 70s. was only... That only yeah, I know, right. I'm, I'm, my, I thought it was the 80s, but maybe... It That's where the novel took place. They never really specified the movie. Yeah, they didn't really... weren't specific, and it was left vague, but I got... But, but the novel definitely was, like a, a, um, was set in the 80s. If you're going to make a movie or write a book that doesn't take place in the current time but only goes back 10 years, you're doing it for a reason. And that's mm-hmm. the same reason that they had when they set Shampoo in 1968. Why not just make it set in 1974? It's because they wanted to set it on, have the movie set on Election Eve in 1968 so you would have that irony of the beginning of the Nixon years and how that was going to look in retrospect seven, six or seven years later. And I'm pretty sure now, now that now that we brought it up, that Watergate was 1974 because I think that they had already included those those Nixon and Agnew um, campaign things on television in Shampoo before Watergate, and then Watergate happened as they were editing it, and Hal Ashby said, "This is going to be golden. Mm. This is going to be golden that we've meant that we've thought to put that in here in advance because now Watergate is happening, and it's going to look so fucking ironic, you know." Wow. So that was fortuitous, but I mean, I'm just, what you're saying. I, mean, I agree with what you're saying. The, the politics uh, is infused through these movies of the 1970s in ways that it, that prob- they probably tried to be kind of subtle about it because nobody wants to be bombarded with that when you're going to the movies. But it's okay to have it woven into the into the fabric of the movie. Yeah, and people were just more, I think you know, willing to accept the idea that government was corrupt, that you don't trust people, you know, you don't trust your leaders. Mm-hmm. And and the, that's the strain I think you see even, you know, in The Godfather, a lot of these movies that, that are coming along. Um, you can, we still have movies that are where they show corruption of corporations and stuff, but usually when the movies that are made about corruption, the people who expose the corruption come out on top, they come out victorious like Aaron Brockovich for instance, yeah. movies like that, you know, where the, where the little man prevails over the corporation. But in the 70s, the bad guy very often prevailed in Network and in The Godfather and in the Parallax View. And Doug, Cuckoo's and, Nest, you know. You know. Cuckoo's Nest, the bad guy crushed the little guy. And that they stopped making movies like that because I don't know what, for whatever well, reason. Well, things they are about to change in the next year, aren't they? Because next year, next podcast is maybe the most interesting Oscar year in Oscar history. And we're going to find out why things changed. And I think we'll have to keep looking, but I think that it really starts to turn around in 1976 when Rocky wins. Mm, I think so. And the movies that we love about their, in the early and mid-70s, they still make a few of them, but they begin to, to dwindle off to a trickle, don't mm-hmm. they? 
Yeah, feel goodism starts to take hold. Mm -hmm. um, and Goddamn you... Reagan with his freaking shining city on a hill, pretending <laughs> that the 70s never happened. <laughs> the shining city on the hill. Um, yeah, because you had Rocky and then you had Annie Hall. Um, so things were, well, then in 1978, you got the deer hunter. So maybe it does tick back down a little bit. But um, anyway, it'll be fun to talk about next year. It's one of the best Oscar years ever. It is one of my favorite Oscar years to talk about. And it always comes up year after year as we try to figure out how all the President's Men and Network could have lost to Rocky. Almost as if there was a backlash, the way there's a backlash to so many um, cultural trends. Uh, it, it becomes so big that enough people get sick of it that they want to rebel against it. Yeah, and listen, look at how things changed. Um, Kramer versus Kramer wins 1980. Um, Ordinary People is the next one to win. Um Chariots of Fire. Is the I'm next getting one sad. This is depressing me now to think that we're <laughs> done with this. The, now the 70s have peaked, really. Gandhi. That's what we're saying, really. The 70s peaked. Gandhi's um, the next one. And you had The Verdict. Even The Verdict was a feel good movie that year. You had Tootsie, mm -hmm. The Verdict, Missing, E.T., and Gandhi. I mean, these are all feel good movies, you know. So things really did change significantly, and they've never really gone back. Uh, Terms of Endearment is the next one. So you can really see it. I, I think it all changed with Rocky. Amadeus. All of these wives and girlfriends and mistresses of producers who saw Shampoo demanded that there will be no more movies like this. Demanded of the, they demanded of the executives, don't make any more movies like this. Wow. So that was over. Now I'm just saying, I'm just joking, but I'm just saying. They, <laughs> that, was, that was the feeling that, you know... That wasn't very much appreciated. Well, things really did change, and you can see them as you look through the 80s. You can see that. And that's why when, if you're like, if you spend all your time with your nose in Oscar history like I do, and you see movies like The Departed and No Country for Old Men and The Hurt Locker winning, you, you, you pay attention to that because mm -hmm. it is different from the kind of movies that win. And, and the only time they won like that was in the 70s. Mm -hmm. I sound like a broken record, but it's remarkable that The Hurt Locker could have won Best Picture, and you know it only won partly because it was Bigelow. Mm -hmm. But I'm also, looking, sorry, go ahead. I'm looking, that's all right. I'm, I'm looking again at some of the movies of the early 70s that had such downer endings. We usually think of The Exorcist as having a pretty, fairly happy ending because at least um, um, Linda Blair survives and she recovers, but... If you look at The Exorcist carefully, the devil won because the devil was really just using her as as a as a, as bait to get the priest. All right, cuties, I think it's that time. Night, kiddos. So. Night, you Thanks guys. Thanks a lot. This was really great. I really had a great fun fun time tonight, oh, and without any coffee and without any wine, without any any kind of <laughs> stimulation or sedatives at all. Maybe you'll try that more often. Yeah, really. All right. Thanks a lot. And, and be safe tomorrow driving. Okay. I'll, I'll email you throughout the day, and I'll email you in the morning before I leave, and I'll stay in touch, and I'll keep an eye on the site and everything because I can do that mobile, you know. And so, yeah, but don't trouble um, yourself too much. You know, I'll be around. Okay. All right. Well, thanks. Right. And I'll okay. be back around 4 o'clock in the afternoon, hopefully. Sounds good. Okay. Okay. Bye. 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 
You've been listening to episode 27 of Oscar Podcast with Craig Kennedy from livinginsinema.com, Sasha Stone from awardsdaily.com, and Ryan Adams from awardsdaily.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Oscar Podcast, and the bumper music today was Jack Nicholson Style by Coming Soon, and Meet Me in the Morning by Bob Dylan right off of uh, Blood on the Tracks from 1975.